Sixers lock all windows and doors. Michael Andrew Smirkanish. Here's the resume. Sirius XM talk show host, Saturday morning CNN host, and author, including not one, but two New York Times bestsellers, longtime contributor to the Philly Inquirer and Daily News, public speaker, attorney, fascinated with politics since you were a teen, a young teen, I might add. Born and raised in Doylestown, you still live in the Philly area, Philly sports fan, Sixer fan, of course, to quote the great Larry King, Michael Smirkanish, welcome to the program. Thank you for that. Nice to be with you, Mark. Thank you. Were you a Larry King guy? Absolutely. One of the great highlights for me, and, and I, I've got the tape to prove it, was to get the suspender treatment. I loved that show. And at CNN, it's funny, maybe every year or 18 months, if I have the opportunity speaking to management, I'll say, you know, an old Larry King show where you work in live callers would be great. And it usually falls on deaf ears. But sooner or later, I'd like to reprise that whole uh, way of doing a live program because I, I really do love it. The best part about his shows as an interviewer, and you do this too, is you listen. I mean, to me, it's the most important part of interviewing. That's a nice compliment. I'd like to think that I'm a good listener because too often in the past, I've made the mistake of, of having the yellow legal tablet with five things I intend to question a guest about. And I move through that list too rapidly or so I fear. And then I say to myself, oh, damn it, I wasn't listening. And I missed what they really wanted to tell me. Yeah, it's one of the beauties of life is going down rabbit holes. And when you hear that, oh, you know what? That's worth exploring. But right, uh, right. I, I don't want to I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. All right. You're involved in politics as a teen at a time when most kids are thinking about sex or try to sneak a beer. I was According doing both of old, those, too. Uh, OK. <laughs> According to an old Inquirer article, you started corresponding with Philadelphia Mayor Frank Rizzo. What were you, 13 at the time? Why? <laughs> I don't know. He was, you know, even though we grew up in the burbs and maybe it was an ethnic thing, you know, a whole Eastern European uh, simpatico, but he was revered in my house. And it's true. I was now listen, Mark, I was also writing to Bernie Perrant and I was also writing to Roman Gabriel. OK, the fire high gang of the early 70s. But it's true. I was I was writing to Frank Rizzo and Frank Rizzo would write back. And there came an occasion in my senior year of high school when he invited me over to his house for breakfast. And it was the beginning of a relationship. And then you later worked for his campaign. Is that right? I did. We had a, a I worked for him in, in the 1987 rematch against Wilson Good, because by then I had assembled some Republican credentials. He switched parties running again against Wilson Good, but this time as an R, not as a D. And for an entire year, which also happened to be my third year of law school. But for an entire year, I worked for Frank Rizzo. We had a falling out when it ended. Thank goodness we kind of patched things up before he passed. But 
it was a it was an incredible chapter of my life. And I've said before that if I could go back and relive that year, knowing mm. we would lose, I would do it again in a heartbeat because the stories you just couldn't believe. Rizzo, for the young people, polarizing to say the least. Yep. Your view of Rizzo now as opposed to, say, when you were 13. Right. So, I, I mean, I was at the time a bit of a sycophant when, when, when I got to know him. But I would, I would defend him even today, even with the statue, having, the statue having been removed from the Municipal Services Building. I think he was misunderstood. Mark, to be in the car, and I would, you know, I was in the back seat behind him because Marty Weinberg would be in the back seat behind the driver. And Marty was smart enough to know that Rizzo was going to push that seat all the way back and there wasn't going to be much room because he was so damn big, you know. But to be in that car and to crisscross the city and listen, he had a story about every intersection. And I think that most of the stories were true. And most of what I remember was laughter, just laughing our asses off, driving through the city and telling stories en route to the next event. Frank Rizzo is worth his own show, but we got to move on. Yeah. All right. From the same Inquirer article in your 20s, you're an advanced man for the vice president. I think it was George H.W. at the time. You ran for Pennsylvania State Legislature. You were still in law school. I don't know how you did that. You were actually part of George H.W.'s administration before 30. And I guess, uh, according to your earlier answer, you did date and you did go to parties. You weren't a total geek. I was pretty much of a geek, but not a complete geek. And, po you know, politics got in my blood because when I was a senior in high school at Central Bucks West, the football powerhouse out in Doylestown, where I was a bit player, I held for extra points and field goals and that's it. But my dad was a guidance counselor and a public school teacher, and he ran for the state legislature when I was a senior in high school. And I got completely consumed in my father's campaign he lost. That was the spring of my senior year. But I now went off to college and I was I was just all full of, you know, piss and vinegar for the Republican Party. And it was Reagan and Bush now who had united as a ticket and happenstance put me in the company of the future vice president and president George Bush. And that really just kind of put me on a path where this was something I wanted to do. You're talking about your father, and I believe he was a football referee. And I'm going to talk more about that after our halftime break when we get into sports. But after Penn Law, you finally got to practicing. You worked on a variety of cases. Is there one case in particular that you save for speaking engagements or cocktail parties that would take 60 seconds that would just leave us agape? I joined Jim Beasley, who was the preeminent trial lawyer. And by the way, why did I join him? Because I wanted to sue the Philadelphia Inquirer while I was working in the Bush administration. And I went to see Jim. And Wait, he accepted Beasley, Beasley Law School, right? Beasley Law School at Temple. Yeah. Yep. And, okay. and Jim took my case. I was a presidential appointee at the time. And he said, what are you going to do after the election? And I said, well, I think Bush is going to be Clinton. I'm going to keep doing this gig. Bush loses the election. I lose my job. Jim hires me and we never file the case against the Inquirer. But the file that ends up on my desk very soon after I joined the firm, I'm laughing, but if there's nothing funny about it, is a guy who choked to death at an all-you-can-eat buffet in the Northeast. And Jim gave me the file and it was to be my first trial and it was going to be in federal court where they are real sticklers. 
Court TV was running a pilot program. They caught wind of the case because I hired as my expert, Dr. Henry Heimlich, namesake of the Heimlich Maneuver. And the case settled before trial, which was fine with me. My client got paid because I was scared to death. I was like frightened to death. The idea that I'm going to try my first case and it's going to be on TV and this is going to be the case. You know, I was nervous. Wow, I can, are you I can are you well, agape at that story? Uh, I, yes, and uh, and it, it's quite a story, and I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you so much. Do you miss it? Do you miss the law? I mean, you seemed to indicate before we uh, started recording here that you'd like to get back at it. Sometimes, um, mostly, I enjoy what I'm doing on a day to day basis, but I I do have a desire before I, I end my professional life. Although I'm not in any rush, I'd love to get back into a courtroom. In the right circumstance, I would do it. I keep my license active. I go through all the continuing legal education programs, but on a day to day basis, I'm not active. Lawyer stereotypes aside, what do you love? Absolutely love about the law. Uh, the law. It's really not just the law. It was not just. It was just not uh, uh, the experience of of sitting in law school and passing the bar. But trying cases and working at a plaintiff's firm has impacted me every day thereafter because I tend to size up situations in life. And it might be radio content. It might be television content. It might be public events or affairs that I'll have to discuss. But it just might be a circumstance in life where you're reading a situation. And the, the lens of what would happen if we had to try this set of circumstances has been very valuable to me. Okay. So you're entrenched in politics you're in law school, you're practicing law. When exactly did the broadcasting bug hit? Because of the unique experiences that I had at an early age, high school and then college, uh, I was invited to provide radio commentary initially on WWDB by a guest of a guest host. The guest host you probably know was Brian Tierney, who's had quite a career as an advocate. Yeah, PR guy. So yeah. Brian was a was a fill-in host on a Saturday night, brought me in as a guest because I was involved in somebody's campaign. And immediately I was smitten. I think the ego of it consumed me. And I hoped that I had a skill set for it. And now in my mind, I had the goal of becoming a talk show host who happened to be a lawyer instead of a lawyer who on the side was a talk show host. And it would all look rather logical and planned if you were to see it on a graph, because I was a guest, then I was a guest host, then I was the Sunday night host, then I was the Saturday and Sunday morning host, then I did an hour and afternoon drive, you know, and then culminated in morning drive, and then the show was syndicated. But you know, John Lennon uh, had that lyric, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. None of it was planned. It just it just evolved. So what was it like taking those first broadcasting baby steps? If you were to listen to the tape, you'd be in hysterics. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I was God awful. Um, not that I worked on my voice. I think it's like 30 years of smoking cigars has lowered my voice, <laughs> but I had an extreme high pitch. And, you know, the, the objective then was just make the telephone lines ring. That's all we were told. You were judged not based on your content or the quality of your content, but rather if there were a lot of illuminated lines. And, you know, it took me a while to realize I could simply say the word abortion or guns and every line would illuminate. That didn't mean it was worth listening to. Yeah, right. 
At what point did you start to cross the threshold from lawyer to full-time broadcaster and why? Well, okay, so I'm back at the Beasley firm and I had been doing the weekend work for WWDB and then the CBS affiliate, which was 1210 AM. And they ended up wiring my law office and talking me into doing an hour a day in afternoon drive. So I would practice law all day and I was, I've always been a morning person. So I would be there early. And then it got to the point where at six o'clock at night, I would turn around on a credenza and I would throw a switch on an ISDN line and I would do an hour of afternoon drive and then I would go home. And by the way, my wife and I are now starting a family and raising kids. It was a crazy time period. I can't believe that I did it. And then one hour became two hours and then finally they came to me and they said, hey, we want you to do three hours, but we want you to do morning drive. And that was the crossroads of me having to say, is this really a dream I'm going to pursue? And I did and never really looked back. Prime time, morning drive. Hey, our mutual yeah. friend Larry Kane got us together. Larry is one of the greatest TV newsmen in Philadelphia history. How did he help you in your broadcasting career? When I was growing up in Doylestown, I worked for a pool and patio company called Mountain Lake Pool and Patio. They're still in no, business. Our neighbors yeah. owned the business. And one day I was asked to drive the company panel truck with chemicals, chlorine, pH rise and pH lower to Larry Kane's house in Rydal. The owners of the business, my neighbors, uh, their son was one of my good buddies. And the two of the two of us like set off for Huntington Valley with this prize gig of delivering chlorine to Larry Kane. We get to the house, knock on the door. A woman clearly working in a domestic capacity answers and says, just put everything behind, you know, in the cool shack out back. Uh, and we said, oh, no, 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 no. We have a bill of lading. We didn't even know what that meant, Mark, that Mr. Mm -hmm. Kane needs to sign. So she accepted that story. And the next thing that happened is Larry Kane, probably having anchored the evening news, maybe even in New York City at that time. I don't know. But he comes down. He's shirtless. Fly is down. Hair is askew. And before he knows what has hit him, these two punks from Doylestown pull out one of those Instamatic cameras where you push the button and then you had to shake it, right? And we and, and we take we each take our picture with Larry Kane. And by the way, I have the image to prove what I've just told you. And, and then fast forward a couple of years, not too many years, when I start to have these political experiences and I've been on radio, it's Larry who first put me on television. And Larry has been a mentor of mine from then until now. I owe so much to Larry Kane. And he gives me notes to this day. He thinks nothing. And I welcome it of calling me up and telling me what I did right or wrong on CNN. Mm. Uh, as we can hear and see, and on the air, you're amazingly energetic, you're thoughtful, you listen, you're never nasty, you're never divisive. Are you this guy off the air too? You know, um, my wife and I, when the kids were younger, would be going to like a back to school night with all the other parents. And when we would get out of the car, she would say to me, make sure you're the talk show host. Because I have a tendency not to be as talkative when the mic's not in front of me. It's not deliberate. It's not shtick on my part. I say the things that I believe to, for better or worse on air, but I don't know, maybe, maybe I get it all out of my system when there's an audience, you know? 
All right, let's go back to politics. Around the time that Barack Obama is running for office, I, I believe it was the first term, uh, you broke with the Republican Party. You grew up in a Republican household. Why did you do this, and why did you make it public? You know, it's funny because people were livid. They were just livid. They were rip shit. Because I'm on a conservative station in Philadelphia, and although when I did it, I never said, here's what you should do, I felt that I would have been kind of derelict or dishonest in, in omission if I didn't say, here's how I intend to vote. And when I told the audience, it was a break point with many of them for which they've never forgiven me. By the way, I love today in this climate to find some of those people who gave me a workout and to say, hey... How would you like to have Obama back now? Wouldn't you rather that than what we have? And of course, they're all you know kind of chagrined when I say that. Um, it was largely foreign policy, though, because by 2008, seven years had gone off the clock since the events of September 11, and we were nowhere nearer getting bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri, and we had taken a left turn and ended up in Iraq. And I just thought that the whole post-9-11 effort had been bungled. And Obama made sense to me when he came on my radio program and started talking, this is amazing in retrospect, started talking about finding bin Laden, even if he were hiding in Pakistan. And of course, we all know how that story ended. So I was able to interview him uh, eight or nine times while he was president, including going down to the White House and doing his first live radio interview. I came back years later and I did an Oval Office interview with him for 30 minutes and and we always had a nice rapport. It was always like, you know, a very direct and honest relationship. We're headed to halftime. Just some personal stuff before we get there. How long have you been married to Lavinia? And give me a thumbnail of the four kids. Okay, we've been married. Here's the answer. A long time. And I would have to think of my alarm code if you push me and then do the math. <laughs> um, three boys, one daughter. Uh, you know, still connected, although they're older now, uh, still connected at home and in I would say in various stages of starting their, their professional lives. Uh, the iPhone and social media and what have you, uh, a relatively recent phenomenon, uh, both of them, uh, in this age of cell phones and social media, parenting your kids, what, what challenges did you face? And do you think you were successful as a parent in that regard? No, I think we probably were uh, not in the loop in terms of the impact that that phones. I, I don't know how you exclude your kids from a social world if, in fact, it's all driven by the phones. But I think that as a society, we've done great harm to our kids because too many of them. I'm not speaking personally of mine, but but certainly there's been some of this in my house. Too much time spent behind closed doors creating a life they're not living instead of getting outside the home, interacting with their neighbors and, and having good experiences. I mean, I, I grew up in Doylestown. Uh, it's funny, D David Brenner had a great line, having grown up in South Philadelphia. He said that he went out to the main line and found that every other house was missing. Well, I live in a neighborhood where every other house is missing, unlike the neighborhood where I grew up, where there was 20 feet between my house and the house next door. But after school, like these were my friends and we played street hockey because we were in the afterglow of, of the Broad Street Bullies and we played Nerf football and we played everything else in the world. And then, you know, my wife and I raise sons who are playing virtual games with individuals they will never meet. 
who may be around the globe and they're lacking those human interactions. This is, and you're kind and say that you, you listen to me. This really is the ongoing theme, not even quite that political of my program. We have got to mingle as a society. We don't have enough common experiences and the internet has been like an accelerant on a trend that was already headed in our direction. And it, it has me concerned because I think that the political divide in our country and the loneliness, the teen depression, uh, so many of the mental health aspects that are plaguing society stem from the lack of common experience. Spend more time in a Wawa and hold the door for somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, we're not going to talk politics per se, but um, I do want to talk more about how we interact with each other in the political arena as citizens. And of course, I want your take on the Sixers and the Eagles flame out. But first, it's our halftime segment. It's the six pack and you have to choose between two things and do it quickly. I don't want you to think about it. Are you ready? I hope. So. You ever get to a game and your view is nothing close to what you thought it would be? Listen, I get to buy seats now, too. No freebies. So I'm teaming up with Game Time. They have got killer last-minute deals, flash deals. You could check out views from all seats in the venue, and they've got your back with the lowest price guarantee. Listen, if you find tickets for less in the same section and row... Game Time credits you 110% of the difference. They show your total up front. No surprises at checkout. Buying tickets takes two seconds, a couple of taps, and you're done. Philly, let's change the game. Take the guesswork out of buying tickets with Game Time. Download the app, create an account, use the code ZOO for $20 off your first purchase. Remember, terms apply. Redeem the code ZOO for your $20 discount at GameTime.co. Philly cheesesteak or Philly soft pretzel? Cheesesteak. Center City or South Jersey? Center City. Gritty or Philly fanatic? Fanatic, for sure. Meek Miller Hall & Oates? Uh, Hall and Oates, but I had the privilege of interviewing Meek Mill and, and he, he put, he put our interview, a oh, piece I'm of gonna, it. I'm going to get to that. I'm going okay. to okay. right. get to Hall that. I'm going to get to that. Don't spoil Hall it. And Oates, Hall and Oates, abandoned luncheonette. I want to make that oh, clear. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that was awesome. That was, I think that was their first, right? Wasn't that their first? I, I, I want to say. Hall Pretty Oates close. Was. Okay, yeah. fine. But, uh, abandoned luncheonette put them on the map. We can the agree best. on that. Um, Dr. J throwback or Allen Iverson throwback? Allen Iverson. Allen Iverson. Liberty Bell or Rocky Steps? Rocky Steps. All right. I'm going through my musical library. I have a handful of artists here. You tell me if you have them also. Are you ready? Yes. Moody Blues. Yes. Miles Davis. Yes. Black Eyed Peas. Nope. Steely Dan. Uh, Asia, love it. Just listen to oh, it yeah. this weekend. Saw oh, it yeah. at the t- saw it at the tower. Saw them play it in sequence in the tower. Amazing show. Yeah, it's my favorite group of all time. Last but not least, Meek Mill. Meek Mill, yeah. So, I mean, I uh, t- tell me about being featured in the Meek Mill song, whatever that so, song was. So uh, I I don't remember the circumstances of how it all happened, other than I know Michael Rubin was involved. I think he was he was sort of my my go to and Meek Mill was willing to come on my CNN program 
I guess it was in the midst of he had he had recently been released and he was still dealing with some of the entanglements of the law and wanted to talk about bail reform, maybe. But he he ended up asking me something like, if I lived in the neighborhood, would I have had a gun? And I said, yeah, I guess that I would. And the next thing I know, without any forewarning, no permissions haven't been asked for and so forth. But one of my sons said to me, Dad, you're you're in Meek Mill's new song, The Other Side of America. Uh, did he ask permission? Did you know that was happening? No, I'm sure I'm sure he didn't because, you know, then CNN, it would have been like a whole rigmarole. Me, I was thrilled. I, it's, it's terrific. Okay. And yeah. no ripples from CNN? As far as I know, none. But I was okay. I was tickled by the whole thing. All right. Well, let's not create any and move on. Exactly. Let's let's talk sports. Wasn't your father a football referee? My father was a football referee uh, at a high school and college uh, level. He, you know, he would do the Ivy Leagues. He would do a lot of Division three. And I, I have to tell you this, that in the Sonny Jurgensen era of the Redskins, when the Eagles had summer camp ready for this, at Albright College in Reading. I must have been 10 or 12, no older, years old. My father gets the nod. This was like the highlight of his refereeing life to officiate an Eagles-Redskins scrimmage. My brother and I, my brother's four years older than I am, we worked the chains. We worked the old school first down chains for a game that my dad refereed. And that was sort of the pinnacle for, for him in that era. But he, he loved it. I mean, every weekend in football season, he would have two or three games. He might mm. do a high school JV game on a Thursday and then a Friday night high school game and then a Saturday uh, college game. Are you sitting in the stands at some point and watching him get booed? No, I, I, I wasn't. I was, but I was sitting in the vet with him and with my brother for many, many years. We were in the, the top row of the 600 level in the, uh, in the end zone in front of a wind tunnel. And those were wonderful memories. The Eagles were horrible. It all kind of culminated with that Wilbert Montgomery play that sends them to the Super Bowl in New Orleans, I guess against the Raiders. My dad ended up going. My brother and I didn't go. But And the play was against the Cowboys in the NFC Against the Cowboys. Game. Exactly. Right. So so like right. that play, I remember that play and I remember that era. And 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 I made reference to this earlier. I was a huge Roman Gabriel fan. I just I was like in 72, 73, 73, 74, 75. I don't know when the hell it was, but Mike McCormick was the coach. And the Eagles were only 500, as I recall. But I was so big. I had a, you know, a number five jersey. And, mm. and, 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 and Mark, he did a signing like 10 years ago in Delaware County. And I was so excited to go out and to meet him and to meet him at that time. Maybe it's maybe I'm lying. Maybe it's 15 years by now. So yeah, a lot of, lot of fun memories of the Eagles and the Leonard Toes era and, you know, Jimmy Murray and then Vermeil comes to town. It was fun. It was fun. Even though they lost, it was fun. Speaking of losing, the Eagles go to the Super Bowl last year. They start the year 10 and one, they flame out. They're unrecognizable from that point forward. What happened? I don't know. And I used to be admiring of the sort of the game face of Jalen Hurts. 
And I would say to people watching a game with me, like, look how dialed in he is. He's just so smooth and nothing rattles him. And after it ended, after, you know, recently it, it ended uh, I, with the Bucks, I found myself saying, like, maybe I'm misreading this. Like, maybe he's too calm. Maybe he's not what he needs to be emotionally during the course of the game. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a Sixer centric podcast. Give me your most vivid Sixer memory. I said to my wife recently, do you remember, uh, you know what we, you and I have Tom Klein in, in common. I'm going to tell you the full story. Tom's partner the, the, is Shane. The great Inspector. attorney, by the way, for the, for the uninitiated. Go ahead. So, so Shane and his partner and mm-hmm. I have been friends for, I don't know, I guess 40 years. And he Arlen's introduced- son. Arlen's son. son. And my mm-hmm. wife and I were introduced by Shannon and Tracy. Mm-hmm. I said to my wife recently, maybe this is embarrassing and I shouldn't tell it. I said, do you remember when Shannon and Tracy had that great 76ers party outside at their house? And my wife kind of spanked me and she said, even though they had a TV outside, she said, that was not a Sixers party. That was a naming party for one of their daughters. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God. But the point is, we were all in, in the Croce era. And when AI and Eric Snow and Dikembe Mutombo, and yeah, I mean, this is your turf, you know it better than I do. Man, were we into that. We were so into that era. And I've never had as much fun in basketball as I did watching Allen Iverson. I mean, Mark, we, we, we have a flagpole in front of our house. And I remember flying a number three Allen Iverson flag on the flagpole. Just because that's how insane the whole thing was. And, how about the and flags the way on the ended, side of the cars? Remember the flags on the side yes, of the cars? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole battle with the Lakers and with Kobe and with Shaq, that for me was great. And I attended most of those games um, in person. Are you able to watch much now? I'm not. I, and I, I still love it live. I still love going and I still love watching. And I, I, I hope to get back on the bandwagon this season. Speaking of sports, listening to your Sirius XM show, you had Angelo Cataldi on, the great uh, WIP morning host. He's been on this podcast. Uh, quite frankly, I thought it was a bit provincial of you to do so, given the fact that you have a national, if not a worldwide audience. But obviously, you thought otherwise. Why? Because I think if the stories are good, then it translates. And I, it's funny you should say that because I, I thought to myself, okay, he's well-known locally. Um, is somebody who's beyond the reach of Philadelphia going to be interested in this? And I said to myself, well, of course they are. He's such a good personality and conversationalist. And I had read the book and I loved the stories that were in the book and let's do it. You were asked recently, as I veer back to politics, what it's like to be the guy in the middle. You were speaking at some seminar. And of course, that means politically being in the middle. And you responded, it feels lonely. That (laughs) said, in one of your recent newsletters, you had a story quoting the Gallup poll, which said a record tying 43% of Americans identify as independent voters. It's become the largest political bloc in the United States. So let me restate the question now, are you maybe not so lonely? Well, I'm lonely. First of all, let me plug my newsletter because it's free and it's worthy. And it is my passion project. Yes, I'm, I'm a Sirius XM host and I have a CNN program, 
but I love my daily newsletter. And it's a lot of my show content that I put out for free. And in direct response to your question, it's me doing what I think the country needs more of, which is I'm supplying media balance. If you landed here from another planet, you'd swear that everybody's far to the left or everybody's far to the right. And what that Gallup survey just confirmed is that it's none of the above. Most people are a mixed bag. You know, maybe they're conservative on fiscal issues and more progressive or liberal on social issues. But the media personalities who succeed by having not an enormous, but a hardcore audience of people who just come back like Pavlov's dog, um, they're the ones who are driving the bus. And because they have so much sway over primary voters, they consequently have a lot of power over elected officials who want to get reelected and keep their jobs. So am I lonely? I am. Not because the populace isn't where I am. We're all together. But it's like in the media world, in the media world, it's, it's just a false portrayal of what the country is all about. And it's killing us, in my view. All right. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we wind things up. But uh, back to this independent majority, if you will. What do you think it means for the presidential election this coming November? What's most interesting is that there's this group, No Labels, and they're well-funded, and they have some smart people calling the shots, and they are toying with the idea of putting forth a Republican and a Democrat to be a ticket as an alternative to Trump and Biden. And by the way they've explained it, you would think they're committed to it because they say, if the American people aren't satisfied with their choices, then we're going to provide ballot access, recruit a ticket and give Americans a choice. Well, two thirds of Americans don't want either of these guys. And there's no way that changes. It's not as if in a month or 60 days, the country's going to wake up and say, oh, thank God for Biden and Trump. This is what we need. You can't turn that ship around. So if no labels means what they say, then maybe there's going to be some choice offered. Now, of course, people then say, well, a third party candidate can't win. So to whose benefit or to whose detriment will it be? And it sets off a whole parlor conversation that I really can't answer. None of us can. But me, I would like to have more choice. Well, Speaking of the middle, and let, let's say we can take this particular person and affix a particular political party so that he or she is not labeled as an independent and does have an opportunity to be elected. And fantasize with me here for a second. Is there someone out there with presidential chops who embodies drain the swamp, but can also maintain a level of civility, embraces the best of conservatism, embraces the best of liberalism, is a consensus builder who's not divisive and can draw votes from both sides and, of course, the middle. Yes, I, I, I do have someone in mind, my dream, and I've, I've had the conversation with him. Uh, and he tells me that his wife uh, won't give consent. Admiral William McRaven, who ran special forces we talk about SEAL Team 6. He's the person who commanded that effort. I've, I've met him. I've spent time with him. I've read all his books. The book that he wrote that got the most attention was Make Your Bed, which is really a great read and talks about starting your day on the right foot. Um, when I finally got to break bread with him, he was everything that I'd hoped he would be having interviewed and read about him. He's the guy. 
In fact, I've said to him, Mark, I've said to him, Admiral, if you were ever to get into this race, all of these jobs of mine, I'm quitting if you'll have me to go to work for you in some capacity. Wow, wow, wow. That's quite a statement by you. You really must believe yeah, in this guy. What is it about him that you think uh, he would make such a great president? I th- and, and by the way, it's not that I've sat there and ticked off an issue list. I, I couldn't tell you his position on many issues. I'm just such a believer that he's a quality person who's level-headed and reasonable and not ideologically driven and would be open to conversation and honest. You recently said that Fox and MSNBC in the mid-90s took their coverage and basically imitated talk radio. Certainly social media has picked up on that. And now we have these extreme views in many cases. Will reasonableness... Will crossing party lines, will compromise, will any of these things ever prevail? Or are we stuck with words like polarization, extreme, and demagoguery for the foreseeable future? The people who program radio and television have got to learn that you can have personality and not be far to the left or far to the right. Somehow they've been sold a bill of goods that Uh, To be an independent, to be a centrist is to lack personality and to lack the vim and vigor that can attract an audience. That's just not true. And I'm I'm trying on a day-to-day basis to prove that incorrect. When they finally realize that you can put individuals on air who are a reflection of the mixed bag that the country represents, I think we'll all be better served. But it's so tempting to just program a conservative slate of hosts or a liberal slate of hosts and then shoot fish in a barrel and attract people who want to be reinforced in their beliefs. I don't think it's all that entertaining. My God, how easy it would be tomorrow for me to go to Sirius XM, turn on the microphone, deliver three hours of saying predictable things about what's in the news. Like who wants to listen to that? I'm shocked that there are audiences for the programs that are all so predictable. So- that's the antithesis of what I'm trying to do on a day-to-day basis. So is the tail wagging the dog here? Has media created this and politicians have followed suit? Yes. Or, or, or was politics always like this? No. And today's media no. has allowed the guardrails to come off? No, okay. no. Can you explain? In, Go the, ahead. in, the, 19, in the 1980s, 60, Reagan's watch. You know, the the conservative icon, Ronald Reagan, by the way, for whom I'd vote tomorrow, I haven't changed. The party has changed. 60% of the House and Senate on Reagan's watch comprised of moderates. There were so many Republican moderates that they had their own gathering. They called it the Wednesday Lunch Club. John Hines, Arlen Specter, Bob Packwood, Bob Dole, Alan Simpson. I could go on and on and on. We're all members of that caucus. Today, there are none left. There are none left. 60% of the House and Senate were comprised of those type of individuals. I mean, George Herbert Walker Bush, Papa Bush, when he was a Texas congressman, was sort of emblematic of the era. He overlapped between LBJ and Richard Nixon. He voted with the Johnson administration in equal percentage to the time that he voted with Nixon. Now everybody votes 90% with their own caucus. Something's like preordained from the minute that it gets introduced, depending on who it is that introduced it. It's all out of whack. Michael, probably not a fair question, but it's my podcast. I'm going to ask, who is taking the presidential oath a year from now? 
You know, I've been saying until recently that I wouldn't be surprised if it were neither of these guys. Hmm. It's, it's so unpredictable. It's just so unpredictable. And as I'm fond of saying, there are individuals out there whose names we don't know. There are events we could never imagine that are going to shake this race and bounce it like a football all over the place. So it wouldn't surprise me if, for different reasons, each of them were replaced. I'm not saying that as much as I had in the past because time marches on and the further that we get down the road, the more it looks like the two of them. And it's an absolute coin toss as between them. You're the author of seven books. You donated proceeds to charity for four of those books, by the way. Good for you. You had a novel entitled Talk. You optioned it to Warner Brothers for TV rights. You have a one-man live performance. Things I Wish I Knew Before I Started Talking is streaming on Hulu. Why, Michael? Why all this tireless output of content? I don't know, man. I, I'm a glutton, I guess. <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy the live work. I enjoy speaking to live audiences. I, Mark, I was... I, I did 25 or 26 speeches around the country in the 18 months going into the pandemic. And then I rewrote a speech that was coinciding with my 30th anniversary of the first time I was on WWDB in Philadelphia. And we, uh, we reserved the Suzanne Roberts Theater as a kickoff for two nights, immediately sold all the tickets, are about to put tickets on sale for the rest of the country. And the pandemic hits. And I've worked up the speech and I've got these, these remarks that I'm eager to de de deliver. And now I, there's like nowhere I can go. So I commandeered the Bucks County Playhouse in New Hope. And I brought in a film crew, a buddy of mine from Bucks County, a childhood friend who's a su successful television producer. And he brought in a film crew, socially distant, everybody masked. And in an empty Bucks County Playhouse, I delivered the speech I intended to take out on the road. That is the things I wish I knew before I started talking. And he then produced it. And it, it was made, we think, even cooler by the fact that you saw the empty seats and there was nobody in them. But I told stories about the radio business through my eyes and the change that I'd seen in politics. And, and that became that special. I have to confess and say, it was like a two-year commitment with Hulu and it may have been taken down by now, but that's hmm. the backstory. Michael Smirconish, 9 a.m. to noon, Sirius XM, Saturday morning, CNN. And what's your website, Michael? Smirconish.com. And when you're there, please consider signing up for the free uh, daily newsletter. Not to mention the Smirch merch. Yeah, that's for shits and giggles. <laughs> but yes, look, look, I love it. I'm wearing one of my hats. I'm going to get one, too. I'm going to get one, too, because I think my profile is similar. Michael, a pleasure to be stuck in the middle with you. Thank you oh, so much thank for, you for joining that. us. That was my you privilege. Bet. Thank you for that, Mark. I really appreciate it. Check out our friends over at Philadelphia Sports Nation, a local Philadelphia sports site covering your favorite teams across blogs and social media. PHLSportsNation.com. Philadelphia Sports Nation, PHL Sports Nation, enhancing your Philadelphia sports fan experience. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Fresh 24. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.